All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Americans? What's happening? What is happening, America? God damn it. What a relief that was yesterday. I'm surprised I get so choked up about it. But I do anyways. The ceremony, the pomp and circumstance, the orderly transition of power in the middle of 30,000 National Guardsmen. But look, it's done. New management is here. The conspiracy theories were wrong. Not only wrong, but it seems like some of the creators of some of the bigger conspiracies were basically like, nah, we were just kidding. Huh? Pretty funny, right? We used your gullibility to break the world. You get it, right? Hilarious, right? The internet's amazing. It's awesome. All right, good luck. It, it's still going to fascinate me for the rest of time how so many people just couldn't wrap their brain around how one of the biggest assholes that's ever lived, publicly or privately, was unpopular enough to lose the presidential election. That a majority of people wanted new management, wanted stability, wanted the government to function again, wanted to be able to look at their neighbors again, to feel like they could uh, believe in people again. I'll tell you, one of the, the dark gifts of this last four years is we know who we all are. I know who I am. I know who my neighbors are. I know who my parents are and friends of the family. We know who everybody, everything's on the table. All the garbage is floated to the top and some of the cream. But what a celebration it was yesterday in terms of embracing diversity, embracing people of all types, and just bringing back some sort of stability, man. It's really stability and the belief that that something will be taken care of in a reasonable way, in a righteous way, in, in a respectful way. And that the person at the helm is a guy who understands how to do the job, how to do the work, how it works. And he's a humble dude, that Biden. I'll tell you, that that speech was one of the best inaugural speeches I've heard. And I felt like he held the, the weight of the world on his shoulders in a respectable and decent way. He's a guy with some real humility, some real wisdom. He's got age on his side. But, you know, he's a humble guy with a deep heart and understands grief. And this fucking country is soaking in it, soaking in fucking grief. He happens to be the right guy for the job at this time. Kamala was great. Everybody was great. I even got nostalgic and in an angry way, seeing like W waddle down those stairs, that recognizable waddle. It's interesting how well you get to know the people that you have the most resentment towards especially public figures. When you're given the opportunity to hate somebody deeply every day, you really understand them. They really make a fucking scar in your brain. They're really up there forever. So are the people you love, but it's interesting, the type of energy that is sort of uh, regrooved and uh, relit when you see somebody you haven't seen in a while who you resent deeply, maybe even righteously. But I, I, I thought the inauguration went great. I really do. The peaceful transition of power behind a wall of tens of thousands 
of National Guardsmen. Before I get too far into whatever I'm going to be doing, my guest today is Andy Zaltzman. Uh, I first met him in the UK back in 2007. He's a comedian. He just started up the podcast, A Bugle with John Oliver, uh, which he still hosts along with the news quiz on BBC Radio 4. He was a good guy. I was out of my mind with sadness and fucking chaos because I'd been left by my second wife and I went to uh, Scotland. Not a great time. But uh, that's coming up. Man, so it's relieving that we're not going to be kind of brutalized and terrorized on a daily basis by a uh, autocratic pig of a person, by a mean sociopathic leader that we're not going to have to deal with that every morning waking up. Look, people love that guy, assholes, a lot of them, or just uh, people who are so rich they don't give a fuck about people. But the truth of the matter is, he was an abusive piece of shit. And he was throwing that shit at us every day. And those of us who, who felt that deeply, and those of us who he terrorized daily, feel uh, relieved because a majority of people are us. A big majority of people are the people that saw that guy for the asshole that he was all the way through and could not understand or believe why he was president, and then had to deal with that fear every day, from day fucking one, just being abused and terrorized by a guy who enjoyed it. He enjoyed being hated by people. He enjoyed any kind of attention he got. But he loved fucking making people hate him and making the people that didn't like him angry and scared. He created a tome for this country that was just horrible. The neediness of that evil fuck that we had to deal with for four years was debilitating, draining, dangerous, deadly. The lack of responsibility, debilitating, draining, deadly. And now that's over. We get a little relief. Look, man, I'm not saying that everything's okay or that the monsters are going to go away or that even things are resolved. We've got big fucking problems. All I know is that one plague down, now we got to get rid of this other plague. So now we move on and it's no less scary. I want to get vaccinated. I want to get through this. I want people to bounce back. I'm not optimistic. I'm not even that hopeful necessarily. I'm just relieved and... I feel a little, a little safer on a country level in terms of the possibility for stability and that we're all not just reacting to or becoming symbiotic with a malignant, narcissistic autocrat who is able through charisma and propaganda and repetition to really brain fuck a lot of people into following him, but also into being terrified on a day-to-day basis of him and what he represented. So now with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, president and vice president, maybe, maybe we can stabilize this fucking undertaking, get everybody vaccinated and try to rebuild a little bit. I just, I don't know. I'm relieved today. 
I really am. Whew. So Andy Zaltzman, uh, he's in the UK, or he was a couple of weeks ago. This happened before the inauguration. Uh, as I said earlier, I met him back uh, in 2007. He's got uh, the podcast, The Bugle, and he's also uh, uh, on the news quiz on BBC Radio 4. And this is a, a nice conversation I had with Andy Zaltzman. What's up, pal? Uh, nice to see you. It's been a while. It's been a very long time. Yeah. I saw you, the last time I saw you, was it, could it be the only time I saw you? Well, we we, we did stuff together in Edinburgh that... Um, right, it was a terrible time. 2006, was it? Yeah. <laughs> It was a long the, time ago, pre-podcasts. Te- well, I think. It, was a, it was a terrible time for me, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, it's not entirely my fault. I don't, no, yeah, but, it had nothing to do with okay, you. You I'll were very down. nice. All right. You, you gave me a, a spot on your show. You were pleasant. But uh, I, I, it was my first time at the festival, and I vowed never to go back there again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I haven't. You've kept that vow. It's good. There's very few vows in this world that people keep these days, Mark. So what I'm having the, the courage to stick with that. I just didn't understand the whole system. It's a system that you guys, you know, live with over there and that you guys understand. For me, it was just uh, embarrassing and horrendous. And uh, it was uh, desperate and sad. And I'd just gotten separated from my wife and I was heartbroken and I was on a double bill and I didn't realize that was a shitty idea. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, those are certain sort of factors involved, and probably, you know, immediately post breakup is not the ideal time to do it at Edinburgh Fest. Well, people make award-winning shows out of breakups these days. It's something I've never quite managed to to uh, to, to uh, create in my personal life. But are um, you still married? I'm still married. Yeah, yeah, which has so, really held so. held back my creative side in a massive <laughs> amount. Sadly, so the breakup show can still happen. There's always time. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, put, yeah. Maybe we'll wait till the kids are left home. You know, just for the. There you go. Yeah. Then, then it's got an extra added edge. It's like <laughs> I can't believe I put up with it this long. <laughs> so, but uh, but but the whole Edinburgh process. I mean, you go back there every year. Right. Um, most years, obviously, uh, twenty twenty was not a great year for Edinburgh. Uh, for uh, it's obvious, it's a bust for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it was. So you're yeah, one of my most profitable Edinburghs financially, I think. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the year yeah. you didn't go, <laughs> I was actually able to make money at home. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I, I went for the the first time doing new act competitions in nineteen ninety nine. Did. Uh, uh, a four-handed show in in 2000 that was uh well I, it was pretty catastrophic and um you know I learned a lot about uh well about the you know the art of negotiating silence and hostility which is a, a key part of stand up and then I I did my first uh, solo show the following year in 2001 But that, the other part the other part of it you learned in Edinburgh is that yeah yeah uh, the silence and hostility but no one being there. I mean, the silence. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not because your jokes aren't going well. It's because you had to drag two people in off the street yeah. who don't know where they're going yes. to sit there and validate your fucking job choice. <laughs> well, it could be both of those things, Mark. It could be two people not laughing. So you know, you can combine <laughs> them. But the, the, the very the, the first year I did a solo show that ended up going reasonably well within the context of a show that averaged about fourteen people. The very first night. I had one ticket sale, and um, 
it later turned out that the person who'd bought the ticket was uh, another comedian who I'd done a gig with a few months before. So, <laughs> being a good guy, yeah. helping you out. So uh, <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> onwards and very, very slowly upwards. <laughs> but the, but that but the whole process of it there, like I'm, I, I I have some questions about Britain in general because I always assume that you guys have it uh, all together and that you're you're ultimately a better culture than us and that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somehow you you think you're all smarter than we are, right. and uh, but I but I don't know if that's true or not. But I do. The system there is that ultimately you have to build an audience at these festivals to make your yearly money. Correct? I mean, you don't. There's not a huge touring business there, is there? Um, I think that's changed over over the years now, and um, it was a it was a sort of stand up boom. I guess early to midway through the first decade of this uh, this millennium, which isn't going great as millenniums go, um, but it, no, it might was... be the last one. <laughs> could, could be. Anyway, could, yeah, we're not going to yeah. make it very far into this one. I don't think we're. Gonna... <laughs> yeah, um, that's a nice, nice optimistic uh, note to to kick off with. But um, <laughs> um, I, I think it did change a bit. Um, uh, so I, I started out, like I said, around about sort of ninety nine, two thousand, and and then there were. So there was a TV boom in stand-up, and uh, that's a TV boom that I managed to successfully avoid. But it did make sort of good for you, good individual plan. solo yeah. touring more viable. Um, right. Yeah. So, so you know, a lot of comedians will sort of go around. There's not, yeah, you know, not necessarily the the most glamorous. It's not. It's not all stadium tours. No, I know. I know what stylus. the one nighter thing is, but I <laughs> yeah. just, I just, it always seemed to me that the 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 slog of the festivals is. You keep going back until somehow or another, you know, the plan is to build enough of an audience that, you know, when you go back there, you're, you're one of the big tickets and you can walk away with, you know, thousands of dollars. You know, that, that, that's the big reward of, of slogging through that thing every year and going through the embarrassment and the struggle <laughs> of a month in, in that tourist yes. town. Yeah, I mean that's you know there are positive sides to Edinburgh, and I've always loved doing it for the you know just the creative side of it, and I've never been particularly good at the sort of career side of things. But it, you know it can you know it can clearly help you evolve as a, in terms of your your sales. But I think creatively, and certainly for the comedians of of my generation, it was a uh, you know where we went to sort of learn the the art and the craft of of stand up because you know, you could sort of go around the circuit doing your 5 minute 10 minute 20 minute spots in some not always particularly uh, helpful environments but in edinburgh you, you could have your own hour and you know i think it's where you sort of work out what you want to be as a comedian oh, that's, I, that's interesting so so in in lieu of of headlining per se yeah. on yes. the road that you know you go there for a month and you do the hour. Yes, yeah. So uh, the first year I did it, 2001, I was you know, struggling to get much paid work on the circuit. And you know, for what Edinburgh, was your particular struggle, Andy? Why well, didn't people want the the Saltzman? Well, I've made but back to that that silence that we talked about before. It was I was I think as a circuit comedian, Mark, I was uh, I was hit and miss. <laughs> uh, I you know I. Uh, it was an inconsistency to my game. Uh, in, um, I struck out a lot in baseball parlance and got the odd home run, but probably you know, the, the the stats weren't maybe good enough for a you know you want a reliable hitter in those kind of gigs. I'm, so, I'm still inconsistent, and I pride myself on that. I, yeah, I try yeah. to. I've, I've 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 spun that into a positive. It's like it's, that's what makes me an artist is my inconsistency. 
Uh, yes, I guess that's a good, a good way of looking at it. But I, I think I learned fairly early on that you know, it probably wasn't going to be my long-term career doing club stand. It wasn't something I was particularly good at. And that, you know, the, the feeling was entirely mutual between me and the, the club circuit who uh, didn't give me many bookings. So go, going to Edinburgh, then you have this sort of blank canvas and uh, you can be, you know, you can sort of set it up how you want. You're, you're not following a, a different comedian who might be a lot better than you or a lot different to you. And it was, it, it certainly where, yeah, where I, I guess, found out the type of comedy that, I wanted to do. Also, there's uh, the 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 idea that it's a th- it's a theater piece now. It's not it's not managing a bunch of drunks at eleven thirty at night. It's it's a we're all going to sit here for an hour and this thing is going to come together somehow. Perhaps may not be funny, but it'll be thoughtful. And I uh, I bought myself <laughs> yeah. a little time. Yes, I mean ideally it'll be both funny and and thoughtful. But um, yeah, and, and I think uh, that's yeah. It was it was creatively you know inspiring in a lot of ways and you know going to see your peers and see what seeing how they would do were doing you know expanding in the same way who were the guys when you were coming up like because like i don't know a lot like who's your generation of british comics that i i know you you worked with john oliver forever and you know you guys are pals and i love john a lot and he's uh you know he's kept me sane lately (laughs) uh does do you guys talk often does he keep you sane um, well, we don't talk as often as as we used to. We used to you know, talk every week and record it and put it out as a podcast. But yeah. um, since John stopped doing that, which is I don't know, four or five years ago now, we, I, I see him whenever I go to New York, which, in the, again, the current global situation uh, <laughs> isn't looking like it's going to be very soon again. And yeah, we we sort of chat every now and then. He did he did he did the bugle uh, for the first time uh, since he he left the show just before Christmas. So that was. Yeah, we got the old band back together for. Oh, uh, how was one that? Show. It's fun, right? It was. It was great, actually. It was. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and it was. Yeah, we we, we sort of met doing the the live stand up circuit, and uh, uh, he did little sketches in my first Edinburgh show. I did some stuff in his first Edinburgh show the following year, two thousand and two. We we toured on the the student union circuit, which is a, again a, sort of part of you know my generation of British comedians. There was a quite a thriving student union circuit where you could go and experiment, and it didn't matter so much. But that was better had, than clubs, right? Uh, it was better than clubs, uh, partly because generally you know you were booked in to do a whole tour so it wasn't like you had to succeed at every gig to get called back so uh so we uh we got to know each other pretty well then we did some radio series together then when john got the daily show job and left me doing a, an edinburgh show alone instead of a two-hander in front of about yeah. 25 people a night we'll see went to the biggest comedy show in the world um how'd uh, that go for you how'd you take that <laughs> well it- i'll be honest it was uh, it was a bit tricky at the time he got offered the daily show job just before <laughs> it was about a month before edinburgh started and so what you know we had uh, it was be an exaggeration say so we had to re i had to rewrite the show because we hadn't right. entirely got around to starting writing it at that point um that must have been a horrible horrible conversation <laughs> uh, well not not really because uh you know it was, it was a, well clearly a pretty big opportunity so uh no yeah i know but still you had to suck it up uh, I guess so, and we'd also had two BBC radio series cancelled uh, around about the same time, and I found out my wife was pregnant. So it was a month of considerable upheaval uh, <laughs> for me. Um, did you do a show about having a baby? Uh, no, I've never. I, I did a routine. My, my second child, I delivered in the bathroom. Uh, at you home. did? I did. Yes, that was on purpose. No, definitely not on purpose. Um, <laughs> 
I think it might have been an early prank by my zero minute old son. Uh, but it, no, it's uh, it just uh, things oh, happened Mike. a little too fast, and I ended up. Um, Oh a my brief, god! Brief, a brief but very statistically successful midwifery career. Did did you know what you were doing? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I've managed to avoid picking up practical skills uh, throughout my life. But that that was I, I don't think everyone has that practical skill. It's not something you 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 no, plan for. It's, it's not in the it's, book it's, of it's you know, innate, like home repair. It's a midwifery. It's one of those you've either got it or you haven't. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, terrifying. But fortunately, it was a fairly straightforward. But I was on a phone call to the. Uh, um, emergency services. Oh emergency. my God! Did you have to cut the umbilical cord and everything? Uh, didn't have to cut the cord. Uh, sadly, um, uh, there, there was an ambulance on the way, so they sort of d- dealt with the. Uh, the they the, stepped the, in. They stepped in and and uh, <laughs> yeah, they did the. Uh, oh my God! They closed. They closed it out. But uh, <laughs> I was. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was. Oh uh, my yeah. God! It was. And I, I went. I went to a British private school. Uh, where yeah. they specifically they're specifically designed to leave you with absolutely no practical life skills. Uh, so <laughs> when I found myself in that situation, there was there was nothing in my life that had uh, given me uh, no. What I yeah, that's that's something that uh, people take care of for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you go to the place and they do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, out of the view of others. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How did you grew up in in London? I grew up just south of London in a town called Tunbridge Wells, which is a sort of commuter belt, conservative town uh, that's you know sort of perfectly pleasant, but not wildly exciting. Uh, and then and, moved to and London. And what, what what kind of what were your what did your parents do? Uh, my father uh, was a sculptor. Um, really, like yes. a successful sculptor. Uh, it depends how you define success, Mark. Um, did he, I mean, <laughs> artistically. Uh, I would say yes, um, and commercially, um, not not as successful. Uh, uh, but uh, he, I, I guess, misunderstood. He a, Is he misunderstood? He, <laughs> I don't know. He set an example that, uh, yeah, in terms of a, a career role model, um, uh-huh. that it wasn't necessary to get what you might call a proper job. So when I started thinking about doing stand up, he couldn't turn around to me and say, "What are you doing with your life?" Because he'd spent the last. 25 years in a barn with a lot of wax and plaster um so uh so i'm not you know were they big pieces uh it was a real mixture uh of um in fact you can you can see on on the the zoot just up behind me there there's uh, oh yeah oh uh he did uh, not abstract either those are you know figures that's yeah figurative um he went through all kinds of different different styles but um and so we grew up surrounded by his uh his, and you got that in sculptures. the basement is that where you are is that i'm in a, I, I have a sort of office shed in the garden um, so that's where you hide the sculpture that's not something you put right well, in the living room no we've got we've got some in the living room as well so, <laughs> <laughs> well, well they just moved they just moved house and we had to clear out um his studio and so uh there was rather is he not co- around anymore no no he's he's he's, st- he's still around but he's, he's not really sculpting anymore but uh yeah we sort of picked up a <laughs> consignment of artworks so now our house has become something of a of a uh, zach zaltzman art gallery um, zach zaltzman so you grew up going to openings uh you know looking at new pieces um there weren't uh, that many openings but we used to go you know go <laughs> go and see his his studio and you know he he would sort of disappear off every every day and every now and again would bring home something um but it it you know it's um i guess set a, a creative example uh did your mother work for a living i mean who was uh, well she uh had been a radiographer and then um 
Is that was, X-ray tech? What's a radiography? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, as was, I guess, generally the way when uh, she had three children, which she just sort of looked, looked after us and then uh, subsequently became a teacher ah. in her sort of mid to late 40s and uh, taught for sort of 15, 20 years. So, um, uh, yeah, so we're quite different people, really. And you, you brought up Jewish? Well, sort of. Uh, uh, I my my father um, was from a Jewish uh, Jewish family. Grew up in South Africa, uh, and they huh. his parents were uh, Lithuanian Jews, essentially. Um, that ran who, away to South Africa. Uh, yeah, in the uh, early twentieth century. Um, huh. I think my my grandfather went to South Africa in about nineteen twenty. My dad was born there, then moved to England, married my mother. Uh, his uh, um, Jewish parents were not entirely delighted that he'd married a, a, a Gentile. My mother then converted and they remarried. Uh, so they got married wow. twice without getting divorced. So then my mother became Jewish so that uh, their children would be... Uh, would be. So, I, so we weren't really brought up strictly Jewish. Uh, I was... Um, I guess the most Jewish I've probably ever felt was uh, eight days old. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what it the, happens. Uh, still got the, uh, the receipt. Uh, for that, and um, uh, but we, so, but we didn't really, we we didn't uh, sort of grow up in a Jewish community or anything, and we didn't go to Jewish oh. schools. But um, we were, my brother and I were bar mitzvahed. And we used to go and have Hebrew lessons, sure, uh, to teach us to 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 read our bits of the Torah that we were going to need for our our, yeah. our bar mitzvahs, of uh, course, and not have, understand them. You no, don't absolutely them. not. Didn't know what it meant, no, but just... I, we knew how technically to. Yeah, you had to, how to sing them. Yeah, how yes. to, to get the weird rhythm yeah. of the Haftorah and <laughs> yeah. uh, get through it. Yeah. yeah but, it oh, was... so that's interesting because, like, I was hoping to get to glean something about British Jewish culture because for some reason I have this weird obsessive fascination with British Jews, and I just wonder, you know, what they eat and you know how they communicate with each other in, in relation to, <laughs> like, you know. Uh, kind of Ashkenazi American middle class Jews. Like, is there a similarity? You know, I don't talk to many British Jews. Uh, I can't really help you with that. Uh, I know, um, man. Yeah, we, we've. Uh, well, did you have a bar mitzvah party? I did have a bar mitzvah party. It was uh, the day after uh, one of the largest hurricanes that's ever hit the, the British Isles, and um, <laughs> so we almost couldn't get to the synagogue. We had to drive about forty miles to the nearest synagogue. Um, uh. Uh, but yeah, I'd got uh, uh, ended up with a uh, one trumpet up and a big book about cricket. That's uh, largely oh, nice. what I remember about it. And a few bonds, no bonds. No, I don't think so. No, it was no uh, cash. A little bit of cash, but oh. uh, not a life changing. I mean, I guess not a life changing amount of cash. But <laughs> <laughs> you went to a private school. Yes. Yes. Um, and what is that? So, did you go to like you went to one of the fancy colleges? Uh, well, it was, um, I guess, it was sort of traditional English uh, private school. I didn't. Uh, most of the the pupils were boarders. It was an all boys school, but I was a day pupil, so my 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 father would drive us drive me in every morning. Oh, so some of them would sleep there. Yeah, um, they quite... had to wear the blazer. Uh, yes, uh, a nice sort of tweedy jacket. Um, uh huh. Very sort of yeah you know, traditional. Uh, <laughs> kind of British education uh, and yeah. it was good in some ways but less good in others I you know, suggested uh, you know, there were huge gaps 
in my practical I never met a girl when I left school um, <laughs> couldn't rewire a plug didn't know how to change a tire on a car but I could express all that in grammatically perfect Latin so um, it was you know there were good points and bad points I guess you learned Latin Yes, yeah, uh, I did Latin and ancient Greek, just in case. You, uh, <laughs> things always make a comeback. You had to? Was it like uh, part of the... I think, I can't remember if it was compulsory, but I, I really liked it, and I ended up studying it at university, as uh, and as did my, my wife, and that, that's how we met. So Latin uh, basically <laughs> gave, uh, found me a, a life partner. So um, What was it about Latin, do you think? Um... I don't know. I guess there's a sort of fascination in uh, the this way civilization that grew and flourished and then faded. And the same with the, with the ancient Greeks. I always sort prefer the ancient Greek side of uh, of my my studies. And uh, yeah. it, it was a fascinating studying a completed civilization. And particularly when you when you think of you know, the, the the upheavals that America has been going through uh, of late, and there are certain patterns that you. That uh, that obviously recur through history as civilizations right. rise and and fall. So was, is this um, where you tell me I got to leave? Uh, well, I'm not sure exactly what point of the. I don't know if the uh, the Visigoths are at the gate yet. Uh, <laughs> Close. <laughs> They're at the capital. They were yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> the Visigoths are a bit more organized than that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thank God. That's the one. The one blessing is they had no idea what they were there. They, once they got in, they didn't know what to do other than take pictures and ruin things. Yes, and try to steal a lectern. That guy. So, but but so that you had a sort of fascination with the the coming the the fading of empire or the yes fa- yeah. yeah which is a, as a as a Brit growing up in the late twentieth century was probably quite a useful thing to have. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I also I I studied ancient Greek comedy, which was absolutely fascinating. Like the, um, Aeschylus. Uh, uh, well, he, he was tragic. It was Aristophanes was the, ma- the oh, main. Aristophanes, right? The clouds, right? Yes, yeah. And um, what didn't one of those open with like a farting contest? There's a lot of farting in it, and it's 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 <laughs> it, it's it was because it was performed to sort of all layers of society. Um, the it was it it it, it operates on a huge number of levels comedically there's you know there's fart jokes there's um you know sex jokes and there's literary parody and political satire all kind of wadged into one um huh. and it's uh, yeah it was it was absolutely uh, absolutely fascinating i saw a, um, i was with my wife on holiday in greece about 15 years ago and there was a, a production of an uh, the aristophanes's uh, frogs uh-huh. in uh the ancient roman theater on the side of the acropolis in athens uh, in is, greek uh, in modern Greek, um, but we, we happened to have a translation of it with us on holiday because I was doing a radio show about ancient Greece just after that, and I was trying to read up on stuff that I'd forgotten from 15 years ago. So we happened to have a translation. We could sort of follow along with it, and it was really amazing seeing jokes that were almost two and a half thousand years old still making people laugh, basically you know, a couple of hundred yards away from where they were first performed in about 400 BC. It was ab- It was one of the most... Sort of inspirational comedic watching, you know, comedy watching moments that I've had. It felt like you know time had, <laughs> had ceased to exist as a concept. People were still laughing at the same stuff, you know, two thousand four hundred years on. It's inspiring to know that if you structure your act correctly, you never have to change it. <laughs> and that well, there's that as the- well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is that if you if you rely on farts and 
subliminal sex jokes you, yep. you can go for centuries century and a lot of they were not subliminal a lot of those sex jokes they were uh, liminal um. but that is sort of fascinating because like you know in this day and age you'd be like well that's hacky it's like it's hacky but you know it's there are human truths yes that have remained uh embarrassingly funny <laughs> since the beginning of humans yes yeah and i think they will they will always you know they've been I think it's something that is really missing from sci-fi set in you know di- long distant future. There's not enough people still laughing at uh, at flatulence. And, um, well, flatulence is always surprising on a couple of ways. You know, you've yeah. got the, the the noise itself. Yeah. You've got the the duration of the yeah. noise. Yeah. But that, oh, and then there's the third one, the smell. So like exactly. that's three levels right there. Yeah, and I, I don't know how they operate in you know in deep space. Maybe there's, there's, there's you know the human body works differently. But you, you know, would think that that's, that's something that sci-fi moving forward. Oh, I'm sure. I I don't has I've I've you know in the, in the right stuff. You got a guy peeing in a spacesuit. We have I don't know. I've not seen uh, flatulence explored. You know, like the, <laughs> the inability to get away from your own flatulence in the suit. Yeah, you know, and maybe that causes deaths. Maybe that's <laughs> it. An, an entire ship. Of of guys in suits get some food poisoning and they all die and it's a tremendous <laughs> mystery for floating around in space for centuries. Right. I mean, it sounds like we're wor- workshopping a film pitch here, Mark. We I, are I right. And the punchline is, oh my god, they they shit in their suits. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's high culture. <laughs> so okay, ended see? up with a degree in ancient Greece yes. and Latin. Yeah, from what, which what, doesn't from have what college? Uh, well, I, I was at uh, University College in Oxford. Um, is that the Oxford? Is the, that yes, Oxford? Yeah. Uh, so, and so I left with this degree, but no, no real idea what I wanted to do uh, in life. But the but the education, right? I, see, this is like I want to demystify. Yeah. Like you know, I've re, you know recently, as time goes on, you know, Harvard is completely demystified. They make monsters there, <laughs> and uh, and they don't necessarily you know the edu- they 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 you know it's careerism. Uh, but there is some good things about it. But there is a type of uh, of ambition that is uh, uh, um, kind of um, nurtured there that I've seen in show business that is disconcerting. Now, I'm not saying that you, you can't get a good education at Harvard. I'm just saying that you know they've they've created fascist and uh, and and very um, popular uh, comedy writers. So, <laughs> <laughs> but. But I mean, the question about Oxford is—I guess who did I talk to? Was it Sasha Baron Cohen? Was he an Oxford graduate? Uh, I can't remember if he was Oxford or, or Cambridge. Cambridge. But one of the, I, know yeah, I can't John, John Oliver went to went to Cambridge. Um, okay, and and the difference between the two is what they're in different uh, towns or no, nothing, nothing much. One's light blue, one's dark blue. Uh, I don't know if that's the color of people's blood or um or what, but uh, it's <laughs> there's there's no there's not a great deal of difference. Uh, I don't know. But, and the structure of the education, like, were you able to, like, you, you well-rounded intellectually? You seem um, to. I don't know if I well-rounded is the right the, the right description. Uh, I mean, it is, you know, it's good. it's a fascinating place, but uh, but yeah, there's particularly doing the, the type of study I did. It doesn't. It again, it's not got huge applications to to the real world but uh i had a great time there and um yeah but what is the real world i mean the real world is like i mean you like to think you're a thinker you're a guy who looks at the world and processes it politically and philosophically and socially and you comment on it i would imagine that the education you got was uh, perfect for that uh i guess so yes and like i said i ended up 
you know, doing comedy, which I'd slightly studied um, as part of my, my ancient Greek side what of things. What was the other option? I mean, how did you arrive at that? Well, that was part of the li- the literature course. So it was um, you know, the ancient Greek literature was, well, the, the, the tragedies uh, and um, epic poetry, the Homer. And um, you know, the, so it was you know, studying the sort of foundations of European civilization. But how did you decide to do comedy? Like, well, I think I'm just because just... it was just, uh, I was just interested by it, and um, I'd, I'd done a little bit of it at, at at school, and it was just struck me as being an interesting thing to study. You know, the you know how did comedy work in a completely different ancient dead civilization, and um, and I think you know it shows a lot. You know, a, a society's comedy tells you a lot about that that society in a way that say studying the, the the tragedies which were sort of less topical and more sort of universal didn't necessarily give you an idea of what it would have been like to be an ancient athenian whereas when, right. when, you, when you the comedy when you think the comedy is aiming at making the people watching it at the time laugh and so you can then start to understand people's sense of humor and therefore you can almost build up a picture of what what life would have been like, what you know, how people would have talked to each other, how they would have tried sure. to make each other laugh. So I guess there, you know, there's certain sort of timeless universalities about that that were. But but what what comic? When did you realize like I can do that? What did you see oh, a stand up? Um, well, I, I the, my first ever gig was um, at, well, a very drunk and uh, b it was a, it was a comedy night while I was a, a student at Oxford. Uh, in, yeah. in our college and a friend had organised it and um, the headline act rang up half an hour before saying he couldn't make it and uh, I was just going to sort of introduce it and uh, do a couple of bits in between and so I had to sort of try and fill a bit more time and the support act did a long, longer set and uh, I had about half an hour's uh, notice of this and I uh, got uh, very drunk and can't remember anything that I said but I remember... The sort of surge of adrenaline of doing it, which you know was one of the addictive things about about stand up, and so you remember for thirty seconds, I didn't feel as drunk as I was. <laughs> exactly, and I didn't. I'm not, I've never been a, bit, a particular drinker, but it was you know I guess the nerves and the tension. Uh, so uh, that was I guess my first uh, attempt at uh, at stand up. I then had a, a, a few gigs when I left university that went so badly that I gave up uh, for about a year and a half. Um, well, what was the other option for work for you? Like, you know, if it wasn't stand-up, what were you headed towards, teaching? Well, I don't know. I sort of had a vague idea that I wanted to be a, a journalist, and particularly a sports journalist. Um, oh. And uh, left university, applied for about 80 jobs, ended up getting uh, a job sub-editing articles about European finance, uh, <laughs> which uh, was slightly <laughs> less exciting than it sounds, Mark. Uh, uh-huh. last, it lasted sounds about a, riveting. I'm surprised. <laughs> lasted about a year, then just gave up and and started doing the open mic circuit in uh, in London. Um, and who was at, around? Who were the guys that, you know, like that, that you started with that, that are still around? Well, I mean, John was starting out around about the same time. Um, Russell Howard was starting around then. Uh-huh. Jimmy, Jimmy Carr, people who've been very successful here. Daniel Kitson was sort of the the, the big... Yeah, the most successful comedian of my generation creatively uh, here. And he was, I think, someone that you know, everyone of my generation on the circuit sort of looked up to. He was you know, starting. Yeah, to yeah. That- I mean, I knew, I, I heard about Kitson for years. And yeah, I, I think I saw, I saw one big show of his in London. I know he, de- you know, he's a uh, 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 unique person. Yeah. 
uh, doesn't uh, do the podcast or talk or you know function necessarily <laughs> yeah. in a <laughs> sociable way. <laughs> but I've I've met him a few times, yeah. and I know that he's a uh, uh, revered. Yes. Uh, so he was of your generation, yeah. or a little ahead of you? Yeah. Uh, well, he'd started a bit a bit before before me. I mean, there were, in terms of, sort of gigs that were kind of landmarks in my early uh, stand up career, there was one in particular. I went to see Robert Newman, uh, who'd been a huge TV star in the early nineties. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, various shows, and but he he'd become a kind of crusading almost journalistic stand-up and he did a went some do an hour and a half in edinburgh um largely about you know the perils of capitalism and globalization and it was right. just hugely eye-opening that someone had the almost the, you know the, the the courage to do that and the the the, the skills to make it interesting the charisma to to carry yeah. it off um and that was uh, that was while I was up doing my uh, that package show I mentioned in Edinburgh, my first sort of full Edinburgh when I was really struggling doing a late night gig and I didn't really have the skills for it. I'd only been going eighteen months or so on the circuit, and you know there was a you know a lot, lot of things that I couldn't do, and I was becoming increasingly uh, dissatisfied with the material I was doing. And seeing uh, Robert Newman do such a you know a fearless, uncompromising show made me think, well, maybe right. you know, I need to not not keep worrying about what is going to make the audience laugh and think more what you know what why am i doing this and what do i want to and and that is the moment that we of inconsistent means yeah. <laughs> all have that powerful moment of yeah. enlightenment that dictates our struggle yes. for the rest of our lives <laughs> Exactly. I don't need to make them laugh yeah. as long as I'm smart and blow their mind. <laughs> and that's why I'm sitting in a shed in South London as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it, man. So what about Stuart Lee? Well, I, I, I mean, that was a, another um, important gig for me. That was one I, I supported him at a charity night. And, um, you know, I'd seen him on television. I'd never seen him. Uh, doing live stand-up and uh, yeah it was uh the, the lineup was uh stuart lee headlining me as a support act and after us was uh dj randy groover uh who was yes. a uh, dj in a spangly jacket playing some absolutely so is that, banging and, and please tell me most people were fun. there to see him <laughs> i think I, I can't really remember to but i'm mean, stuart lee wasn't i mean he was uh quite well known but he hadn't become the the, the, the was this before the, he quit and then uh, come back. I think he was just on the way back at that point. Oh, um, from memory. I, and then I did a few gigs supporting him on tour when he uh, was briefly on a diet where he ate nothing but cabbage soup and had. Uh, I remember that on, diet. Come on the was train. Was he fat? With, uh, it, well, I think he had been. Uh, I don't know how much good it did him, but he didn't seem to be enjoying it very much. But it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a new stand-up getting to support him on at a few gigs. And you know, travel around. Was with he him able to integrate to flatulence into the show? <laughs> I think he's always that. had that. He's had, always had that club in his bag. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I also, I did. I did some. Get my first. Uh, the year I did my first solo show in Edinburgh in two thousand and one. I ended up doing three gigs supporting Joan Rivers, um, which uh, was I mean, that was that was really eye opening. I, I don't know quite how she ended up with me as her support act. Um, but to see someone of I can't remember how old she was, she must have been about seventy at the time, with just must the have been great enthusiasm and energy that she had, uh, and the sort of just the love for for performing. That was uh, I mean, she was incredible. How did she? How did she? How did she do? Uh, well, she yeah, she had quite a big 
fan base in in I can't remember. It was a sort of fifteen hundred seat theatre, and they were very you know I me doing seven minutes at the start uh, to fifteen hundred Joan Rivers fans was not necessarily a recipe for success, but she, it, she was yeah, um, she was in I mean, incredible. So, yeah, physical energy and the you know the the speed of her mind as well. It was uh, that was uh, that was really great to see as a, as a new stand up to see someone who you know been doing it since literally before I was born. And and were you like I don't know how old you are uh, in compared to me. How old are you? I'm forty six. Oh, you're younger than me. Right. Yeah. So do you, you don't remember necessarily, or you were not comedically cognizant when uh, you know, when Bill Hicks landed in your country. Uh, no, uh, I missed that, uh, yeah. and uh, I, I, yes, that's. I think I, you know, if I'd been, I think more more into comedy than I was as a student, I could have uh, seen him. Nick Doody, who was a comedian. I don't know if you uh, you know Nick from the from British circuit. I think. I mean, he ended up supporting Bill Hicks at a gig as a student in Oxford. Well, it seems to me that for some comics, and certainly maybe for somebody like you, like you know, his arrival was sort of like you know, Hendrix. You know, <laughs> to uh, to the to the to the the musicians of of London when he came over, you yes. know, there seemed to be an impact being yes. made. Well, that was a bit before my time, sadly. So I sort sure. of slightly miss, missed out on uh, on that. Um, yeah, but I think there's a legacy of, of oh, guys we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. I mean, like when I saw Stuart Lee, like I'd been hearing about him for a long time, and I I just like I don't know a lot about uh, British comedy, but I you know when I went to Edinburgh and I saw him. You know that he's one of those guys that decides the pace. Yes. You know, I've I've always admired people that sort of like this is going to be difficult for a lot of you, but there's this is what's going to happen, and this is the speed at which it will happen, and this is the tone of it. Yes. So make your decisions. Are you in <laughs> or out? Yes. And you know, it's a rare thing. It's a great thing. Yes, and it's I guess at some point all comedians have to decide. If how and where they will or will not compromise, and uh, I know, and it's a it's a weird thing, yeah. you know. It's it's you're you know one of the, you're gifted uh, if you have no choice in a weird way. Like if you like if this is all you got, this is me. I got no other <laughs> gear. <laughs> yeah, there's no like I better I better do this to make this work better. Yes, that, that that's a gift. It's yes. a painful gift. But it's a yeah, gift. but it's a it's a liberating realization, isn't it? I saw I, again in one of my first Edinburgh's, I went to see Tim Vine, who does nothing but puns, and you know he yeah I remember that guy. But he has absolutely no plan B, and yeah. clearly not everyone likes plan A. But he just you know <laughs> he is that's it in his own way totally uncompromising as well. And yeah. uh, you know, so yeah, I I think that's what I got out of most in my first two or three years doing Edinburgh was seeing you know other comedians who were sort of further on in the process and how they were choosing to 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 do their comedy dug into their character yeah um i'm going to do something i haven't done before but i think it'll make the conversation better i'm going to you're going to excuse me for a second so i can go to the restroom is that all right (laughs) yeah don't go away (laughs) okay very uh interesting to me because i'm talking to you and you're british that i actually excused myself i don't think i mean generally it would be like i gotta pee hang out a minute but no yeah. i i 
I'd like to be excused for a second. I have to use the restroom. <laughs> the fuck is wrong that's, with me? That's, like, that's, that's the effect. You can't, you can't, you might have jumped ship in 1776, but you can never, <laughs> never fully get rid of us. In fact, you might be re- with Brexit. Yeah, you know, we're open for business again. Come back to the mothership, America. I don't, I, I, yeah, I, can you, uh, what, what's, okay, get me up to speed. So you're in lockdown right now. Yes. Big time, right? Big time lockdown. Because there's a, there's a, a a new exciting strain yes. that uh, that uh, permeates walls. Uh, it permeates everything. Uh, it's a British strain, therefore it's easily the best. It's a world leading <laughs> virus strain. <laughs> Once again, we're ahead yeah. of the world. Good, um, <laughs> finally back. They're back. <laughs> yes. So yeah, we're uh, sitting at home um, and. Uh, Yes. Did you, were you able to go out for a little while? I mean, I don't know what what you guys are going through. It's pretty like it's 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 always it's so scary here. Do you know people that have gotten it? Are you? Uh, I've known a few people who've had it, um, and uh, I mean, luckily, no one close to me has been been severely ill uh, with it. Yeah, but um, obviously, it's been a massive disruption on my children's schooling. They're uh, fourteen and twelve, and uh, oh. it's uh, you know it's tough having to you know sit at home do just basically working off computers and um which is you know that it's it's a huge scar on a whole sort of generation's childhood so i'm not sure we know the full repercussions of it you know luckily we've got a nice house and a bit of space and parks nearby and um yeah uh so you know it's much better for and us you guys going people, crazy but... are you getting closer do you learning uh, things about each other you never wanted to so we've got on pretty well um yeah considering um watched a lot of television uh and sure. uh, uh i know yeah i was uh, during the summer last year i um in my sort of parallel life to comedy i'm a cricket statistician and i do uh cricket stats on the radio for the bbc cricket coverage so i got to go and spend six weeks watching international sports during the middle of lockdown, which is one of the weirdest, most surreal experiences of my, of my life. Huh. So, um, but it's nice that, that like it is, you, you are grateful to be working. Yes. You know, I mean, the one thing about doing what we do and, and figuring out how to adapt is that, I mean, you do a weekly radio show now, correct? Uh, yeah, I do, a, I do a, a radio show for a BBC Radio 4 called The News Quiz, which is a sort of topical show. That's on sort of half, half sort of 24 weeks a year. And I still do the Bugle podcast with uh, sort of rotating cast of co-hosts since, uh, since John left. So, um, Is that every week? Uh, that's every week. Um, so, so it's nice to be working. Imagine yeah, if we weren't working, be yes. crazy. Uh, so and you know, for people who, uh, you know, whose main line of work and income is stand up, this has been completely catastrophic. So I, you know, I've been Terrible. very fortunate from for, from that point of view. But the, the last performance I did in front of live, actual, physical human beings was, I think, in end of, well, almost a year ago now. It's the end of January. And uh, you know, I, do, wow. I do think quite a lot about you know what will I will I still be able to do? I don't know if you think that, that you know when you were last on stage with a with sadly, a crowd. I, sadly, I my thoughts are: do I still want to? I think I'm <laughs> well, all. I think I'm good. I think. <laughs> well, that's think another side enough. of it, isn't it? Um, <laughs> there's been times I, when I thought I really miss it, and there's other times when I thought, well, do I, do, you know. Do, do, well, do I have the, the strength to to go back to it and almost relearn those skills and those? I think of... the skills will probably come back and it will probably be exciting. You know, I just don't. I like. I have to assume 
that things will have to be different after all this shit. I mean, after Brexit, after we become, you know, a, a, an authoritarian country, <laughs> um, that that how we approach, you know, life again is it, it has to be different. I mean, I don't believe that there's some sort of return to something. You know, this like we don't know what the fuck is ahead on any no. level. No, uh, which is, I guess, simultaneously exciting and terrifying. Um, terrifying. It's terrifying some days. Yeah, I mean, I had a trouble sleeping last night. But I don't understand Brexit at all because, like, I can barely keep up with the news here. But, I, you know, I, I don't – I know that, that people in the U.K. look to us as, like, you know, what the fuck is happening there? But I have that same thing. I'm like, what is really happening there? Well, I think uh, most people in Britain are thinking that, probably on both sides of the uh, the the, uh, the Brexit divide. And it's you know it's been a the, the strange thing with with Brexit is Britain's membership of the European Union has been you know slightly con- controversial for most of the the sort of four and a half decades that we were part of the EU. But it was never a yeah. it was never a massive political issue, and all the sort of polls you know said it was in the you know it was a major issue for about five percent of the people, and then it because for you know essentially party political reasons uh, david cameron then prime minister you know called this this referendum and it it suddenly became the completely defining totemic political issue of our times and it's created divisions i think of a similar type to uh the divisions that trump has create well it's a mixture of sort of creating and revealing i guess um, sort of, oh disenfranchised working class anti-immigration uh, uh nationalism on uh, one side well there's yes and there's you know there's sort of various degrees of that but i think it's it's created divisions that are not obviously uh bridgeable or curable whatever happens so right uh, and so in terms of the you know the long-term prospects obviously with the, the difference with Brexit and Trump is that Trump was only going to be president for four or eight years, whereas yeah. Brexit is for, you know, the foreseeable future, whether it's forever or not. I, I, I don't know. It's impossible to say. But it's it's not it's not something that can be forced back into the box in the way that, that Trump has, albeit that there is now debris all around the box and the box may pop open again. Um, right before collapsing like an overstretched metaphor so it's it's yeah. become yeah it, it it's just sort of defined politics and yeah. um it, and now we're 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 stuck with it and it's it's going to be one of those things well philosophically i was you know i uh was a huge fan of the european union and britain being part part of it and uh, you know i will always think that and i always hope that britain returns to being part of either the european union or whatever may emerge from from if it collapses or whatever um uh, and in the same way that people who were opposed to it uh remained opposed to it throughout the four decades which were largely successful for both europe and britain that britain was a member so there's no real middle ground and uh i i covid has almost been a distraction from brexit and right uh, you know the, the the sort of past year when we might have been sort of really kind of introvertedly examining what brexit 
meant for Britain as a country and for the people who live in it, uh, we've been completely distracted. So I don't, I don't know when we're going to get round to that, that reckoning and working out exactly what, what you know, who we are and what we want to be. Right. All this work has been done. The, the Brexit deal is finalized, but now no one can go outside. Uh, yes. And it, <laughs> so so um, yeah, yeah, that's all put on hold is how, yes. you know, culture and, and British society will function under the new game. Yes. Um, it's all on, yes. I mean, we've essentially hibernated as a nation. And in fact, I mean, I think there's, there is something to be said, I think, for hibernation. I think it's something that humans as a species would... Might consider. We should yeah, consider Taking it. a, a yeah, three-month I mean, or to a year break. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, if, if there is a positive to come out of COVID, I guess lockdown is as close to hibernation as we're generally allowed to get. And, you know, it's something that I would like to see formally instituted three months every year sure i mean it's sort of like the midday nap in yeah. uh in in italy in spain yeah, yeah exactly so it's just it's just like we'll have a three month a year nap yes <laughs> i mean that, that's one of my main my main reasons for being in favor of britain staying in the eu is i was always hoped that britain would adopt the siesta for you know the proper <laughs> afternoon nap which is always something that we've been a bit too hard working as a society <laughs> Uh, despite my best efforts to, to, to balance that out, statistically. but isn't there certain pub rules? I mean, don't isn't there a, uh, an instituted like? Don't you? Isn't there a midday drink you're supposed to have? And- uh, yes, um, that was. Uh, I mean, yeah, that, again, that, that's always been part. We've we've drunk through a lot of things in our history um, as a as a society, and um, I mean, and and in fact, with, with COVID, there was so so much of the debate was about what you know when and how the pubs would open. That was yeah, almost yeah. that for a while. That seemed to be the most important <laughs> thing that the government had to deal with was managing the reopening of British pubs, which had not even <laughs> shut down during the Blitz. I think so. It was, that was this shows how you know what COVID has done yeah. that, that it made British pubs close, and uh, that's it, it, uh, are, they are closed, huh? Uh, they are currently closed. They were, were open. They've been sort of intermittently open. They're now, I think, currently all closed. You, for a while, you could get takeaway beer from from pubs, huh. uh, which slightly defeats the object. Um, I don't know if they're doing takeaway quizzes as well, but yeah. are are your um, are the hospital are the ICU units like busting like here? I mean, is the death rate spiraling? There? Uh, it's it's got very bad quite quickly in the last few weeks, and the, uh. I think the the numbers are up. Sort of back beyond on beyond what they were during the the first the first wave. Uh, it's so horrible because we're so insulated here in our own panic that, like you know, I, I fail to realize sometimes. Like you guys are in really in the same thing. Yes, it's just um, it's terrifying, and people are dying every day. Uh, it, it is, and I mean, I, with the, uh, the you know the, the various vaccinations that have been approved, there is. There's hope. There's a bit of optimism that it, you know, there's some sense that it might end in the vaguely foreseeable future. But again, it's something that we, I'm not sure we'd be able to process exactly what it's done to yeah. Britain. Exactly, you know, the the the, the, the massive failures that have uh, come along with it. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's going to take years to, well, to, to as you as you talk about, you know, what kind of society is going to emerge from this you know from the sort of selfish point of view of a you know working comedian are people going to want to go and sit in crowded rooms again i think there's going to be a desire to do stuff that isn't sitting at home but when will people feel comfortable being crowded into a confined right confined and, space and also pe- people have become very adept at tuning in 
to uh, these things. You know, like I'll do a live IG in the morning just to keep my brain sharp yeah. and engage with an audience in real time, uh, which which has helped. Um, but I think like what you're saying, if I think about it, like you're, you know, this idea that our brains want to know, it's sort of like, well, how how are we going to reflect on this? And and that's really a, a, the question a comic has to answer in terms of you know presenting it. Yes. So I mean that might give us both a little hope because like in my brain, my biggest fear is that we're all going to see this as some sort of collective trauma, and because of PTSD, we're just going to you know sort of. Um, compartmentalize it into this haze that's like kind of a smear of a memory that a year or a year and a half and and kind of want to move past it that's my fear yeah is like is that we move past it and just sort of suppress it as a traumatic time without really contextualizing the impact you know yes and like I, said, I mean particularly for you know having children who are you know at, at school age it's yeah it's the sort of defining It'll probably be the yeah. defining time of their their entire lives. Really, it's you know it's going to shape their their outlook, how they you know how how they interact with with life and um yeah and and comedically also I, I think I don't know what you think about this, Mark. What, what are people going to laugh at different things after you know when stand up restarts? How how different is it going to be? What what how you know with the impact that this has that this has had this huge kind of defining. Yeah issue but at the same time it's probably going to be something that people don't want to think about don't want to be told about when they go to somewhere for escape well so i don't know how it's going to impact on that well i, I think we've established that we can start with farts no matter what <laughs> <laughs> there's always that the, there's, there's the always. timelessness of flatulence and sex yeah, yeah. and uh yeah, certainly flatulence and, and sex. Reflecting on flatulence and sex during the the the, the pandemic will be rich yeah. with laughter. Yes. There's going to be family flatulence like no never before. Difficulties in having sex, both with families not being able to leave the house and also dating time. Yeah, yeah. A lot rich material with both of the <laughs> the the timeless classics. Yeah, I th- I think that that like that kind of thing will be will be interesting like yeah, the honesty around that because i i do think that people are are i don't think that we're going to totally adapt to the intimacy of what you and i are doing here or that people are going to become so uh uh symbiotic with screens that you know the necessity to congregate will be will diminish i i don't i don't think that's true i think that people lose a, a great deal of themselves when they isolate even if they're talking to people on screens so I think that if it ever becomes safe again, people will want to congregate. Yes, oh, de- definitely. But I wonder, you know, I guess it'll be a process, wasn't it, of, of almost kind of relaxing back into it. And yeah, I don't know how you relax. I did a movie, dude, and everyone. <laughs> I did a movie for twelve days, and everybody's wearing masks with COVID protocol. But I got to be honest with you, once I surrendered to the idea that like this is as safe as it's going to be you know we're getting tested every other day and everyone's wearing masks all the time except when we have to act and i was fucking thrilled to be you know in a collaborative effort in real time with living people i mean it was like it was like thank god you know i'm sane again for a minute is there gonna be an an, an eruption of uh sort of you know, communal activities of you know artistic expression, almost like, you know the kind of post-war 
booms of people just you know wanting to do anything. Uh, I would I, hope so. That 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 would be encouraging. You, I want to think that a lot of people, especially visual artists and, and stuff, are who who generally work in an isolated way, anyways, like your father might have, are are really kind of doing exciting things now. But I think people are so freaked out that most people are just paralyzed and not doing anything but watching television in their sweatpants. <laughs> I've done a lot. I've got through a lot of pairs of sweatpants in the last <laughs> last year and a bit. <laughs> but I, I I don't I don't know. But like in you know, given that you know you spent your early life studying this sort of arc of of civilizations. I mean, and, and and even with Brexit or whatever's happening with COVID, do you how do you frame this in your head? I mean, do do you are you like somebody who's like, well, this is going to pass, and and the species will probably persist, uh, or or. How are you? You don't seem like an existentially fraught person. Do you? <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, I think, well, it clearly is going to pass in the way that, you know, plagues have passed. There were, you know, plagues in the ancient world that were, um, you know, fairly well, kind of traumatic and shaping experiences. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I veer between wild pessimism and wild optimism. And, yeah. Um, I guess, and a lot of it is thinking about the world that my kids are gonna gonna grow up in, and the kind of lives they'll be able to lead, the the the, the, the what the education they'll be able to have, and you know what kind of jobs are going to with all these different right. impacts on 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 life, whether you know Bre- Brexit, COVID, the the environment, just the general changings of the of the world. It's it the the sort of picture that I had of the world that they would enter when they depart childhood, uh, it's 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 changed. I don't really, I can't really imagine, even in ten years' time, what they will be dealing with. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the, the most difficult thing for anybody. I don't have kids, so I, I'm I, mine's in the realm of selfishness. Like I, my head, I'm like, I'm 57. I've done okay. All right, maybe I'm done. Who <laughs> so. But like when you have children, as many of my friends do, I, I think that, you know, is challenging for you as a person, as a father and, you know, somebody who wants the best for their children. But but also just no matter who you are, there's n- there's no personal status quo anymore. Everything has been sort of of, of uh, blown up. You know, everything has been, you, you know, shattered. So we're, we're all looking into this darkness without any real footing. And I think that that the anxiety of that is 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 overwhelming but I, I do think like you're saying i think that's the most honest way to look at it is is this we just don't know and yes. it's really difficult that you can't even rely on like well i can always go to the place no you can't because it's closed it's gone yeah. but are they gonna i don't know you know i don't yes. know <laughs> uh, yeah i think it's i mean this is the the, the time of greatest human ignorance of my lifetime in terms of people kind of knowing what what's going what's going on currently and what is going to going to emerge? So it's right. Know, it's you know kind of, as you say cosmically unsettling, and you know yeah. things. I guess some things might emerge largely unchanged. Other things will be vastly different, and uh, some things sure. will just end. So uh, yeah, but again, but again, not not farting and fucking. Farting think, and fucking yes. are going to persist. <laughs> Yeah, death, taxes, farting, and fucking. Those are the big four. <laughs> Never go away. Is, what, isn't, is your wife in politics? Uh, she's uh, not. She was a, a, a criminal lawyer, a criminal advocate, oh. um, and is currently uh, 
Um, she got a doctorate studying uh, how young people are, are dealt with by the judicial system um, oh. and is uh, currently writing writing a book about it. So, um, uh, yeah, she has a slightly more serious existence than I do, <laughs> talking nonsense and uh, thinking about cricket. Well, yeah, but I uh, but that's good. Like it's so that's the other hard thing about. Like and I, when I talk to creative people when who are in the middle of working on things, they're like, "Does this even matter?" Do, <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> yes. Like, are well, we just it's just just the, the 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 are we just you know animating the death throes of a civilization? <laughs> well, possibly, but you know, de- death throes are always fascinating, aren't they? Um, yeah. Uh, but when uh, when I started out in stand up, um, we've been together since since university, as I, as I said, and she was starting out around about the same time uh, on the the legal circuit, and uh, yeah. you know it's a different type of performing. There were certain similarities of being a, uh, a you know criminal advocate in in Britain. Where you're oh, so like, she was uh, a trial lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Basically? So um, she was. Uh, uh, yeah, it's similar. You're sort of self-employed. You go from gig to gig, and uh, yeah. but the difference would be that I'd be delighted if I'd written a an amusing pun about fruit, and uh, she was doing <laughs> cases involving, frankly, horrific crimes. So um, <laughs> it was similar yeah. but different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could see your your sort of enthusiasm uh, at the end of the day when you're discussing <laughs> your days, kind of fading in 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 light of her achievements. <laughs> Yes, but the, but wait, wait. This punchlines, this tag is great. You just gotta like. <laughs> yes, and you know, if I if I had a bad day at work, then I'd be slightly uh, slightly humiliated and embarrassed. And if she had a bad day at work, someone would go to jail. I guess so. It's, yeah. <laughs> You, you, you got to decide whether or not you're going to stick with that bit, or if it needs something else. <laughs> and she's got to live with the fact that yeah. uh, somehow or another, someone's going to spend their life in prison. Yeah, I mean, these are the lives we've chosen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was cut out for uh, for, for real life, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but but sports, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I'm not a sports guy, and it seems that people who like sports, at least that gives you... That, I mean, that is something to live for, you know? Y- yes, and it's, you know, everyone, you know, finds their escapism in different in different forms. I've been... I did love sport from when I was about six years old, and it's... Uh, it's you know, something that's that's throughout my life been something where I can you know just escape from yeah. whatever I'm doing and uh, whether yeah. it's you know, playing it at a very low level or 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 watching it. And I started um, you know, writing about cricket via the Bugle. Actually, I talked about cricket on the the Bugle but because we always had quite a big American audience. So I'd, you know, try and do as much cricket stuff as possible to <laughs> yeah. goad America for not having yeah. uh, taken the greatest sure, to thing ever. Honor that uh, that that uh, that original. <laughs> Uh, Zaltzman manifesto of alienating as many of the audience yes. as possible, yeah, yeah. You know, without yeah. getting any real foothold in success. <laughs> yeah, that's good. What, why change a losing formula? And um, uh, so I, I ended up sort of get, getting to to write about cricket for a cricket website, and then doing um, being part of the BBC's radio coverage. And well, particularly lo- last year, it was it was this in, sort of incredible escape from. From from everything else, and it, you thank know, God they kept playing. I guess, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the the players were all in in bubbles, staying in hotels on the on the grounds, and the media were staying in different parts of the. the Are they still doing way. it? Uh, yeah, around the world, there's there's you know it's cricket bubbles going on. England's just gone out to Sri Lanka. There's Australia and India are playing, and uh, it's um it's a it's a sport that 
you know, the, the the longest form of cricket, the games last up to five days, and there there is a it becomes almost meditative when you when you sit and watch an entire five day match, and you know, quite a lot of them end in a end in a draw, and it's it almost it puts you on a it's almost a sort of spiritual escapism from uh, oh, that's great from everything. I would heartily recommend it, Mark. Yeah, I I mean, I I don't have I don't have many good escapes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm painfully stuck in the, <laughs> you know, my imagination is just fueled by uh, uh, dread and, uh, you know, occasional uh, uh, glimmers of hope and fantasy. Yes. But I don't, like, I'm not a science fiction guy. I'm not a, I like music. But uh, do you do you are you a science fiction guy as well? Not really. My daughter, who's who's just about to turn fourteen, she's uh, she's got really into it, and she write, she's now started writing. So I'll just go up to her bedroom and I'll say, "Oh, what, what are you doing?" So oh, I'm just writing this this uh, the science fiction story. So um, so I'm, That's I've great. Start, yeah, I've started to try and you know get a bit more uh, more more into uh, into that. But um, yeah, what's his uh, son up to? What's his interest? Well, he's quite he's quite into sports um, oh, yeah. and maths. Uh, so uh, yeah, they're they're doing uh, they're coping pretty well. Very I can't quite imagine how I'd have dealt with this as a. I guess children are quite flexible, aren't they? I mean, they do adapt to what is put, what is presented to them. But yeah, they'll take been, it. They'll take it. It's, yeah, they'll uh, and they'll adapt. It's yeah, uh, they're they're their own little people. I guess after a certain point. <laughs> yeah, it's been. Uh, my, my my daughter was seven when uh, she uh, turned to me at dinner and said, "Daddy, I think I'm getting too old for your jokes now." And that was a real, that was a real moment. So, you know, those landmarks in parenting when you, know, you realise your children are becoming more independent. That seven, seven years old. Huh? Wow. <laughs> well, outside of the bugle, which is topical, and the cricket, it has to is sort of you know up to date. Uh, you got to stay on top of that. But uh, you're not really. I mean, I I can't even begin to frame a future set. Uh, at this juncture, but you know, for somebody who thinks in terms of, you know, hour-long presentations, have you begun to think about that? Um, no, not really. I, I do um, the last four years before uh, before so from twenty sixteen to twenty nineteen. I did an end of year review show, just sort of my main stand up of the year, when I'd you know try and you know put the event the world of, of that year into an hour of right of stand-up but i didn't <laughs> yeah. do that this year and so it's been a long time since i really sat down and tried to plan out uh a stand-up show and i, I was thinking about it um a couple of weeks ago because I, I realized that you know basically i'd i'd done you know four gigs in <laughs> in 2020 and they were all in january right. and you know i thought well what would i do if i had to do a gig now what what would I, and I couldn't remember, you know, how even how I used to start a stand-up set, or you know, what, sure. I couldn't remember. I mean, I've got them all written down, but because I, I, you know, write stuff every week for the Bugle, and most of the stuff, as you say, that I do is topical. It's for the Bugle or, or radio shows. I don't. I'm constantly churning over material, but not necessarily sort of honing it into into lasting stand-up. And I just, I, I on a slight panic that I thought I've. I've I've got no idea how I would do a stand-up gig now, and you know, having been, do, um, you know, doing it for over twenty years, that was that was slightly frightening. Uh, it's you know, not a, 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 I do podcasts and radio and, and, and cricket, so stand-up is not what I rely on. But as 
a, a comedian. Well, you can't, but you always got that muscle working. Yes. You know, I was I was doing three sets, four sets a week, no matter what, just to stay, you know, frosty. Yeah. And and yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. There's definitely going to be, you know, does pre-COVID material matter anymore? And, yes. and like, and you know, we don't know what post-COVID is going to look like, but we all know what the fuck we're living with. And the one thing about it is there, there is a certain. This is one of the few times in history where we all have something very specific and very fucking prominent in common. There, you know, like we can all talk about, like, uh, you know, how we handled this, how much cooking we did, how much eating we did. How much jerking off we did, how much yelling at our kids we did. I mean, there are going to be diaries of of COVID, but I, I sadly, you know, from day to day, I would imagine the patterns reveal itself, and it's one long, one long day, you know. <laughs> yes, and also, also, and doing sort of political topical comedy. A lot of what I've done in the last four years has been about you know, Brexit and its impact yeah. on British politics and globally on on Trump and. America and what you know what Trumpism stands for around the world, and you know those two things are going as well. So, uh, right. so what? What? I've no idea what I would. You know, if I, someone said, "Oh, you got to do a an hour long stand up show in a month's time," I I think I would uh, I would really struggle. I think to to know what to what to do. And I, I guess you know a deadline, a, a genuine deadline is always a great motivator, Mark. So sure. I guess we'll have to wait until you know that does. Yeah, that I think I think we'll, all, we'll snap into shape pretty good. I mean, one thing I've been noticing about Trumpism and fascism in general is that, uh, you know, people who can't leave their houses or are unemployed um, are generally uh, going to fuel that movement. <laughs> you know, that. <laughs> There's economic desperation and there's a lack of work and a lot of time to, uh, you know, go down whatever rabbit hole your brain is going to go down to make your anger feel better. And uh, sadly, a lot of times that ends with uh, excluding people and and possibly uh, genocide. So... (laughs) And also, I mean, the Internet is there are infinite rabbit holes on the Internet. The worst. uh, You can find your people. You can. Or in my case, you can find black and white uh, early footage of sport from the 1920s. But there's there's rabbit holes for everyone. There's a universe of rabbit holes. Yes. uh, Yes, We're finding that. Yes. We're finding that. It's a yeah. Nobody needs to have the same experience ever again. It's a, it's well. I guess we'll find out, Andy. I, I think, I, oddly, I think that if we do get a reprieve and we do get uh, the ability to once again enter the world, that we will be so excited, we will find plenty of things to say. Right. And will will you come back to Edinburgh? The, the, no. the emotional Mark no, Maron no. return to Edinburgh. Is I that, will not. If there's one good to come out of COVID, Mark, surely it can be that. Come, come back, come back to the fringe. I'll, I'll, I will come back damp to room. I, no, I can't. I will come back to London. I will never go to the Gilded Balloon again. <laughs> I, I just have no idea about that world. But I did have. A, I before the. I did do a couple of dates in London over the last few years in Birmingham and. Uh, 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 what else? Man, where else did I go? I did three dates, but I, I had. I had a nice time. Manchester, I think. Yeah. In London, Birmingham, Manchester. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does that that does make sense. I, I, rem- I remember speaking to you that year in 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 Edinburgh, and because I, I was doing my political animal show that you did in a in, yeah. in a room in sort of an old kind of underground. Right, it was a long, almost. a yeah. long thin, like yeah, a yeah. narrow room with bricks. A lot of bricks. Um, 
Uh, and yeah, it was a kind of classic Edinburgh room that it was completely not designed for stand up, but it had a oh, certain like damp. atmosphere. I think it was damp, damp, very damp. Yeah, the, the yeah. humidity in that room was. Um, yeah, it's the kind of room you felt that someone probably died in it about two hundred years ago, and or there was or there was butchering done, and yeah. there was like you know, real work on anvils or with knives. Yes. Yeah. Uh, th- those walls would have stories to tell, but uh, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. What, what year was that? Must have been two thousand and six, maybe. Yeah. So well, that was the year that John went to do the the Daily Show. So I think I was. Then again, we were supposed to be co-hosting that show. Oh, we were and, both um, shattered then. We were both like <laughs> struggling. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I I I, I will say this. I, I maybe I will come and we'll hang out in Edinburgh again. If yeah. not, let's uh, <laughs> let's hang out next time I come to London if that's ever possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. Good talking to you, man. You too. Okay, that's it. Andy Zaltzman, as I said earlier, he's got the podcast, The Bugle, where you can get wherever you get podcasts. You can hear him on the the news quiz on BBC Radio 4. Enjoy the relief while we can. And uh, I'll try to muster up a little hope. You know, I've been meditating and I've been uh, yoga-ing. And I've been working out and I've been trying to keep my sanity. I've been hiking up COVID Hill. But, uh... Relief and, okay, hope. Hope that we stabilize this fucking thing and hope that we get everybody vaccinated and some structure and organization begins to occur on a federal level. And also that, yeah, I'd like to uh, I'd like to be proud of my country again. I really would. I'll play some guitar for you now. Everywhere. Thank God for new management. Yeah.